people think that telling a lie is a very simple and automatic process, but what goes into the formulation of a lie and does that help to get some signs or signals that this person might be deceptive? Introducing The Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello everybody, this is Mike Carroll, International President of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I am with Mark Solomon, our international vice president. How are you doing today, Mark? Mike, I'd like to tell you I'm doing well, but I'm a little nervous. A little nervous today. And why is that? Oh, it's our next guest, man. <laughs> this guy is a human lie detector machine. I'm afraid of uh, answering any questions. I might get my lawyer before I answer anything. But uh, actually, in all honesty, we're really excited to have him here. So uh, I think it's going to be a great show. Well, Mark, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? You got it. So he is a partner and president of Wicklander Zulowski and Associates, as well as an instructor for the organization. He is responsible for the company's strategic vision and oversees day-to-day business operations. He's considered an expert in the field of investigative interviewing and interrogation and conducts and consults on criminal investigations ranging from theft and fraud to sexual abuse and homicide. He worked tirelessly and collaborated with members of the academic community, advocacy groups, and other relevant partners to further the enhancement of interview and interrogation protocols throughout the United States. He has contributed expert opinions for a variety of cases and was cited by the Federal Court of Appeals for his involvement on the topic of interview and interrogation. We are honored to have him here today and like to welcome to the show, Dave Thompson. Well, hello, guys. I'm, I'm a little concerned. You said that you're a liar, and then you said you're excited to have me on the show. So I'm not sure which one of the two to believe. Uh, go with the second. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I'm going to turn things over to uh, Mike to start off with our first questions. Hey, Dave, I got to tell you, I've seen your training and presentation in the past and uh, prior federal law enforcement before I retired. I learned a lot from your training on interviewing witnesses, suspects. It's outstanding. So thank you very much for all the training you do and being a great partner of the uh, IAFCI. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Actually, and I, and I think that's really the thing to kick off with is just the collaboration with the association and seeing how many different uh, different people with their different experiences. You know, you've got federal background, and then some folks now move over to the private sector and don't don't realize that you may have to adjust you know, your skills or your, your methodology, I guess, in some of these cases. So skills are translatable, but continuing education is important. So it's a great partnership to have. Yeah, Dave, you know, from prior training, just basic what I've learned from what you've taught is, um, you know, you could tell if somebody's lying just based on their behavior, right? Well, I think that's what's changing so much, right? Is uh, that used to be kind of the go-to is you know somebody scratched their face and looked up to the left, and we we call them a liar. And really, what the what the research is showing is that our ability to detect deception purely based on physical behavior is just about as good of a chance as flipping a coin. And so there's a lot more that's going into it now, which is important because people get nervous for so many different reasons. Yeah, Dave, I, I just want to mention that's exactly what Mark was just doing. He was scratching his face and looking up at the ceiling. 
We're on radio. How can you see me, Mike? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but when you, when you think about this, the lying piece, I think that's important. Like, you, you know, if you're doing a, a financial crime investigation, you're talking to a potential victim, maybe even a witness and a suspect, all three of them might show the same behavior, right? All three people could cross their arms, avoid eye contact, be a little fidgety, but it's probably because all three people are nervous just for different reasons. And so when we rely strictly on physical behavior, it can be uh, problematic if we misclassify as guilty. And so there's a lot more that goes into it to try to determine what's the source of that, that change. Dave, I wanted to ask you a question. There's a, there's a statistic out there. It says 93% of all communication is nonverbal. I found that fascinating as a, as an investigator with law enforcement and now in the private sector that, you know, there is so much beyond the words that are spoken. And can you talk a little bit more about that? And and when it comes to behavioral activities of a person that you're interviewing? Yeah, I think, so if you look at that, that number, that study, they, they took a few different words that people say, and they had people say it in different ways, and they had uh, people just read the word, or they had different behavior associated with the word, and saw that we all kind of pick up a different tone, right? I'm sure I know the two of you have probably gotten in trouble at some point for sending like a one-word text message response to somebody, you know, if you just said K or OK, period, even worse, uh, and it causes a, a little conflict, and it's because all we have there is written communication, and so what that study and similar studies are really focused on is that there's so much more context when you have you know, verbal and nonverbal behavior combined with the specific words. But it's not to go too extreme, if you think 93% of communication is physical behavior, then that means we should all be able to travel the world and communicate pretty well without knowing the language. So uh, we have to be able to know what do the words mean? What's the, what is the words that somebody is saying compared to the evidence that we have? Behavior just might help provide a little more context to what's being said. Uh, is somebody being, you know, having tone, having an angry or sarcastic tone, or are they saying it in more of a confident, assertive way? But it could be the same exact word choice. Very interesting. Hey, Dave, you know, I'm the international president of the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators, and we have over 6,000 members. And most of our members are those that investigate financial crimes. So I'm just asking, like, what would be, like, the appropriate interview method for financial crime cases? I think what's changed a lot, and for Mike, I'm sure you've had this experience, right? In, in your career, and especially in the federal days, a lot of people have always used the same technique, right? People go to training, and it's always, you know, use step A, step B, and step C. And what we have learned is interviewing is not a one-size-fits-all approach. You might have a case where you have to talk to a potential victim that you don't know, are they a victim of financial crime or they may be contributing to that crime? And you don't want to walk in accusing somebody. Uh, Maybe their memory is not really good. You might want to use what's called a cognitive interview, try to remember an event. Maybe you have a little bit of evidence, right? Somebody's falsified some documentation or some paperwork, and you may want to use a method called the participatory method, the strategic use of evidence. Or maybe you have direct evidence and you want to make an accusation at some point. So I think what's really important for investigators is slow down and actually strategize each conversation uniquely because they each require a different approach. And Dave, can you explain a little bit, you know, people think that telling a lie is a very simple and automatic process, but what goes into the formulation of a lie and does that help you as an interviewer 
to get some signs or signals that this person might be deceptive? Well, let me ask you guys, if you, uh, let's say you're driving and you're trying to find an address, right? You're going to like a new restaurant or a friend's house. I don't know if you guys have friends, you're financial investigators. So I don't know if people like to talk to you or not, but <laughs> let's assume you all have a couple friends. <laughs> let's say you're driving somewhere new you've never been before and you've got your GPS on your phone and it's, you know, giving you directions. But as you get closer and closer to your destination, what do most people do with the radio? They turn it down, right? They usually turn the volume down as you're getting closer and closer to where you're going. And why do we do that? Is because we're trying to focus, right? We're trying to, we can't focus on the GPS and listening to, you know, my latest podcast uh, from the financial crime team. Like we can't do both at the same time. So we tend to minimize that load on our attention span. And really what we're talking about is called cognitive load. And what they found is when people lie, when they have to create a lie, it increases our cognitive load, right? If I asked you, just tell me what you did yesterday, you could tell me. But if I said, I want you to come up with a complete lie about what your day was yesterday, it causes you to be, uh, put a little bit more pressure on yourself, right? You have to make sure it chronologically fits, the details fit, you're not creating evidence that's not accurate. And so one of the first things to think about when we're understanding a lie is what kind of internal pressure is on that person as they come up with that lie. And that's generally what might cause some of these things we talked about before. Um, So it's that cognitive load. And one of the interesting parts of that is we as interviewers can ask questions to help increase that cognitive load. We can make it more difficult to somebody to lie rather than just identifying the lie, make it more difficult for that to occur. Yeah, Dave, I knew the answer. Um, I just thought I didn't want to outsmart Mark. I thought he'd answer that question. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> I was looking at Mike. Mike was looking at yeah, me, we're... and we're like, who's answering first? But uh, now I w- know why I, when I pull into the garage, I do turn down the radio because, you know, I don't want to hit the uh, stuff in front of the cars I'm pulling in. Uh, you know, I have tight space, but that, it makes total sense. <laughs> right. You can, <laughs> so... you, can see, you can see better when you turn the volume down. Yep. Yep. That's amazing. And then um, when we talk about that lie and that person is is deciding whether or not to tell the truth or lie, obviously, I would assume that maybe a delay could be an indicator of deception, but you're also seeing behavioral changes. And how important is it to really gauge that person you're interviewing before you get into these, uh, let's say, difficult questions? There's a variety of different things that come into um, what happens when somebody decides, either decides to lie or just kind of impulsively lies, but a pause, like you suggested. If you ask somebody a question and they hesitate, a lot of times our kind of gut instinct is, well, that person's probably not telling the truth. But as you just mentioned, we we have to know, first of all, what does a person do normally, right? I know uh, a lot of attorneys, for example. If you have an attorney who's very well-practiced in taking depositions and examining witnesses, they more than likely, or politicians are the same, more than likely when the questions asked of them are going to take a couple seconds to process the answer because they know that's going to potentially come back and burn them later. Other people are more impulsive in their responses. So one, it's important to know who we're talking to and kind of how do they normally communicate. But then secondly, even if it changes, so if you're talking to me and I don't tend to hesitate, right? I just I have a quick response every single time, and all of a sudden I have a longer pause. Maybe it's because I'm confused by your question. Maybe it's because I don't actually remember the answer, or I'm trying to put myself back in that moment again, which we can talk about here in a second. 
or maybe it's because I'm coming up with a story. So going back to the first thing we talked about, even if we see that behavioral change, instead of assuming guilt, that should trigger us to explore and ask more questions about that topic. Hey, Dave, I want to ask you some of the changes in interviewing over the last several years, and you touched upon it, but I just want to bring up, there's a scam out there where individuals are being recruited to give up their debit card and PIN number or allow somebody to put a check in their account. So on those types of cases, the interview of that account holder is the key to get the account holder to admit uh, guilt, knowledge, intent, or are they a victim, witness, or suspect? But it's a very popular scam right now. These bad guys are figuring why do identity theft when I can recruit somebody to do my work. So do you have any tips for those that might interview these individuals on how to obtain a confession? I think that that to me is one of the most difficult parts, especially for financial crime investigators, is you're talking to somebody often that you don't know if they're just a completely you know, ignorant victim they were taken advantage of or if they maybe contributed to the scam. And so the first step I think is understanding what rapport actually is and, you know, developing rapport is not just, Hey, the, the weather's nice today. How's the weather by you? And all of a sudden we're friends and we, we get along and tell each other everything. But rapport is really understanding what is that person going through? How do we project empathy? And so whether that individual turns out to be actually a suspect who's involved, uh, maybe they were a suspect, but they were kind of, tricked into getting involved, or maybe they're just a completely ignorant victim, empathy plays this, plays a role in all three. So I think the first step is understanding they probably don't want to talk to you, even though I love talking to you guys, but if I was doing something wrong, I probably don't want to talk to you. <laughs> so having empathy, that's an uncomfortable conversation. And then maybe secondly, and we could talk more about it, but secondly would be understanding what may have motivated them to get involved in this, right? Were they dealing with financial struggles themselves? Did a group of other people they know also get involved and got away with it? So it was a little bit of peer pressure. Was it opportunity? Was it impulse? And, and so without removing consequences, but trying to understand what motivated them to do that in the first place, because most people don't wake up in the morning intending to commit that crime. Something triggered that opportunity. Yeah, Dave, just to follow up to what you're saying, this type of scam, you might get an 18-year-old college student who's never been arrested that puts a check in their account, or you might have another player that has an extensive criminal history. So I guess doing a little background, too, would come into play before you interview your target. Yeah, I think, and knowing how they're walking into that conversation. I mean, if if the one of the two of you got a text message from a significant other or a supervisor or somebody or in your past internal affairs, and it said, uh, we need to talk, call me now. Right. Imagine what goes through your mind and your stomach when you get this unknown type of, uh oh, I'm in trouble. And so when you, as a financial crime investigator, for people that are listening that have to maybe schedule interviews or, or do door knocks or have to maybe just make a phone call, just think about even if a completely innocent person is on the other end of that, of that conversation, what kind of anxiety is being driven just by the mere presence of an interview? And so having some rapport and empathy to try to make this a comfortable conversation, regardless of which direction it's going to go, is really important. 
And Dave, a quick question here too is when you talk about rapport building, uh, probably a lot of our audience are uh, are not professional interviewers, just members of the public, maybe have little experience. And I always think of the TV shows where you see the good cop and the bad cop and the the shining light, you know, down on the suspect. And and you know, to me, doing twenty six years in law enforcement, you know, it's really the opposite. Like you said, it's really about connecting with that person you're interviewing, whether it's a witness a victim or a suspect, you're trying to get them to give you information. And then sometimes when it's a suspect, you're trying to get them to admit to a crime, which is not an easy thing to do. So is that, I mean, do you find that it's rapport that gets you to that point with the suspect where they, you know, you build up enough rapport, you treat them with respect, uh, you show empathy. Does that typically relate to a confession? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. People, people like to be respected. And uh, here's an extreme example. Uh, the United States assembled a team of experts several years ago after kind of post, post 9-11 uh, torture and all this, this terrible stuff we were doing to try to get information that wasn't, wasn't fruitful. They established a group called the High Value Detaining Interrogation Group. And you got academics, you have practitioners, and they're reviewing thousands of interrogations of counterterrorism suspects. So these are very difficult cases. And they tried to figure out, you know, what is the, what are some of the core principles of these interviews that obtained actually reliable intelligence? And rapport was one of the, the number one common denominators in very difficult cases. And, and again, rapport doesn't mean soft, right? It doesn't mean we have to you know, bring our subject into a, an interview room, give him a hug and make him a coffee and all of a sudden we're best friends. Rapport is about being respectful, about being emotionally aware of maybe what the situation is for them and for us and allowing them to kind of demonstrate their emotions in a comfortable environment. And so maybe we can explore that a little bit further. So I think it's important that every conversation is a little bit different. And a lot of interviewers that enter with the same, you know, 30 second shtick in the beginning of every conversation, it may not be appropriate for the person that we're talking to. Hey, Dave, we're always getting new members of the IFCI, and uh, a lot are law enforcement, a lot are financial crime investigators from banks and uh, card issuers. What are like some of the common mistakes interviewers might make? We wing it too often. Let me ask you guys that first, and I'll go into some of these other. You, and I'm sure because you're so experienced, so good, especially as you were doing you know, several interviews in your career, you feel like your strategy, the amount of time you, you spent on strategy and preparation, did that go down or up as you further in your career? Up. You know, I think that's a good point. And oftentimes investigators can rush in to an interview, not do their background, not know all the facts of the case, know the person that they're interviewing. And then also, like I said, sitting with another individual in that room and not strategizing how you're going to approach this uh, interview. Yeah, I agree with Mark. You know, if you do some successful interviews and uh, you move on in the next interview, you're, you don't do as much background as you need to right. do because you've been very successful and you're not doing your homework. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's pretty common across the board. And I, so for us at Wicklander, we still sit down as a team and we will strategize any investigation we get involved in. Um, and part of that strategy is what we talked about already, right? Rapport, maybe what's the motivation, but it's also understanding your evidence, what excuses or explanations could exist for that evidence, and how do I properly sequence an interview 
to increase the power of that evidence or explain it away. And so, you know, a quick example, uh, I know we're talking financial crime, but let's, let's go off the charts a little bit. Let's say we've got some type of homicide case or a shooting, and we have a suspect whose fingerprints were recovered off the weapon. Maybe they have on their jacket, we found some, some debris from the weapon being fired. And so we have some pretty, pretty damning evidence, right, that this person might have fired the weapon and they were wearing this jacket when they fired the weapon. But if we don't strategize, we walk in the room and we just directly accuse, right? We know that you are the suspect. We know you're the person who fired the weapon yesterday. They're going to say, no, I didn't. And then we're going to say, well, we have your fingerprints. We have debris on your jacket. And they're going to come up with an excuse, right? And we don't know, by the way, if their excuse is valid or not. They might say, well, I fired the weapon at the range last week. Or um, I wore that jacket when I went to the range. Or I have a bunch of friends who happened to borrow my gun and they go shoot at the range. Those could all be valid truthful statements or those could be smart denials and so when we strategize we would understand before we reveal any evidence we want to ask a series of questions that might eliminate those excuses right do you have any weapons how often do you fire them where do you keep them who else has access to them and those types of questions without revealing the evidence actually increase the power of that evidence when somebody says i haven't fired my weapon in over a year right or i don't ever wear that jacket and then you have this evidence in your pocket increases the, the power of it and then therefore allows you to, to present that contradiction. So, yes, yeah, strategy, I think, is one of the biggest common mistakes. We can go into some others here as well. And Dave, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit. There's a, a famous criminologist out there, Donald Cressy, who came up with the fraud triangle. You know, we always know there's three elements that usually a suspect must have in order to commit a fraud. One is pressure, so some sort of financial pressure, uh, social pressure. Then there's opportunity, which is, you know, the person has a reasonable chance of stealing and not get caught. And then third, rationalization. I want to focus on rationalization. How important is that when you're interviewing a suspect to sort of rationalize the crime with him? Does that play any significance saying, hey, I understand why you did this. You know, you're hurting financially. You're trying to support your family or, you know, um, you have mouths to feed. Does that play a role in the interview process? Yes, it does play a role, but it plays a role in a very, um, in a tricky way sometimes. If we don't do it accurately or inappropriately. So, for example, for those people who maybe haven't done interviews that are listening to what you just described, which is really helpful, Almost everybody at some point in their life has probably committed to eating better or going to the gym or going for a run or whatever it might be. And so let's say our, our commitment is we're going to start to eat healthy. And we go for maybe two weeks. We did okay. We lost a half a pound. We're feeling good about ourselves at somebody's birthday party, so we have some cake. Hey, Mike. And then usually when we decide to eat healthy, is this one of you two? Is this described? I, I think you're describing both of us. I struck a chord. Yeah, I'm feeling, I guilty. Gonna... I'm feeling guilty already. I, I confess. I confess that was me. I figured. I lost a half a pound and then I ate for like three weeks straight. <laughs> That's right. And so when you do that, a lot of people rationalize that action, right? Somebody might, even internally, maybe even say it out loud, but you think, ah, I lost a half a pound. I've been doing really good. I deserve that cookie. Or I'm only going to have one. I'm going to go back on the treadmill tomorrow. And what happens is when we do something we're not supposed to do, we don't want to feel even more guilty about it. So we tend to kind of transfer guilt, right? It was the opportunity was there. Somebody pressured me into it. And so when you translate that to financial crime case, if I stole money and I stole money because I'm struggling financially, 
for me to admit to stealing money, there's actually two things here that are troubling for me to talk about that are embarrassing, right? Number one is that I was struggling with money in the first place. And number two is that I made a decision to steal. And maybe, maybe financial struggle isn't the pressure. Maybe somebody else talked me into it. So I'm embarrassed to tell you that I was vulnerable enough to be talked into it and to tell you that I stole. And so empathy, what you're describing, is really important. When I mention it's tricky, what we don't want investigators to do is to come across when, when we're kind of showing this empathy that we're actually justifying somebody's action. Right? We don't want them at the end of the conversation to think, oh, yeah, I did that, and this interviewer thinks it's okay. There's no consequence for this. And so it's a blend of being able to create a kind of open atmosphere for somebody to tell you what they did without feeling further judged, but also not remove consequences at the same time. Excellent point. Hey, Dave, we could go on for another hour just about asking you about all the different type of uh, interview techniques, but I was going to ask you one, again, going back to this scam where young uh, individuals are recruited and you're interviewing them. You know, you're here in the interview room being questioned by law enforcement, and the person that recruited you is down in the Virgin Islands living it up with all the money. you think that's a good interview technique? That's important to be aware of. Some of my experience with that, I did a lot of cases involving organized retail crime for a while, and very similar, right? You have a maybe a, a low-end person on the on the org chart, the shoplifter who comes into a store, steals ten thousand dollars worth of product, and maybe they get you know ten cents to the dollar on that product as their payment, and then they they are giving that to somebody else who's then repackaging it, who gives it to somebody else who's then reselling it, and the top of the pyramid is making all the money with really none of the risk. And so when you have apprehended or you're interviewing the shoplifter, and then yet in this case could be the person that you're describing, there might be a little bit of a motivation there on how they're not getting compensated the way everybody else is. They're at highest risk. It wasn't their idea in the first place. And it's kind of, if you think about the comparison, it's like interviewing an employee at a company who's frustrated that their boss and their boss's boss and their person's boss is making more money than they are, even though they're doing all the work. And so when you can allow somebody to feel comfortable to vent about that or to describe the situation, again, it goes back to what we just talked about. There's maybe two things to admit to here. It's the actual crime or incident, but it's also what was that pressure or feeling that they were, they were going through. So they're disgruntled, they feel taken advantage of, uh, and they can talk about that. It makes it a lot easier to then talk about the results of that pressure. And Dave, a quick question here, too, is obviously we interview all different types of people, suspects, victims, witnesses. How does trauma play into that interview? If a person has been traumatized, either physically or emotionally, how does that alter what you do as an interviewer? Trauma-informed interviewing is something that investigators will probably, probably start to hear a lot of if they haven't already. And what that simply means is we are informed of how trauma may impact the person we're talking to. And when we think of trauma, people might think of you know, sexual assault or a violent crime that they witnessed or PTSD, people who've maybe experienced war or law enforcement who've experienced some pretty extreme circumstances. But trauma could also be a employee of a company who was sexually harassed or dealt with a violent customer. It could be a victim of a financial crime who just recognize that they're you know, now in debt a quarter million dollars and have to pay that back and they're embarrassed and now that can all be traumatic. And so when we interview somebody, we need to be aware of a few things. The one, trauma can be embarrassing for somebody, so we have to have empathy. Uh, somebody may be re-triggered of that trauma during the interview. 
And so as they're being interviewed by, I'm sure Mark is a nice guy usually. So let's say Mark's doing the interview and you're doing everything you're supposed to do. But for some reason, this person that you're interviewing maybe interacted with somebody in your position 10 years ago and it didn't go well and it was traumatic. They were falsely accused. Well, you interviewing them again may re-trigger that which causes these emotions to come out that are kind of inconsistent with today's interview, but it's because it's reflecting back to what might have happened a decade ago. And the, the last two things with trauma and form that's important, just as a quick takeaway, is somebody's emotions are probably inconsistent. Right? And, and a lot of interviewers that are, that are listening, I'm sure have done some interviews of you know, sexual assault cases and some violent cases where a victim may laugh when they tell their story may kind of close their eyes when they tell their story, may cry when they tell their story. And it's not because they're lying. It's that's kind of their coping mechanism. But the last piece, just to remember with, with anybody who experiences trauma, our memories are terrible, right? Our memory is terrible even without trauma. But when we have a traumatic event, we're kind of focused on survival. We're focused on the feelings and we're not keeping track of what time it is and what's the description of the person that I saw and all these specific details. And so when we give the I don't remember, sometimes somebody who's experienced trauma actually doesn't remember. So you have to conduct those interviews a little bit more strategic. Yeah, that's great. Great information. Yeah, Dave, like I mentioned earlier, I've, I've seen your presentation, your training, and you know, just getting one tip from your presentation might lead to a successful investigation. And I know you're going to be at our annual conference in National Harbor at the end of August. But I wanted to ask you, I didn't see this investigative tip, and I want to run this one by you. This is Mike Carroll's investigative tip. You know, interviewing the suspects using famous quotes from movies. You know, like I would say, you can't handle the truth. Or <laughs> it ain't over right. till we say it's over. Or I lost you at hello. Do you think that type of interview technique would work? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sure. If, I'm sure if Mark did it, it's probably he doesn't even he just walks in the room and people start to admit to him. Is what I've heard. But <laughs> I, I, I actually, I think I actually did a presentation at one of your conferences that was titled "You Can't Handle the Truth," and it was, uh, it was actually for fun reference. If the people who haven't seen the movie, A Few Good Men, I don't know where where the hell they've been for the last twenty years. But if you watch that cross examination scene where you've got Tom Cruise interviewing Jack Nicholson about, did you order the code red? That method that he uses there is the strategic use of evidence. It's the participatory method that we teach. It's asking a series of irrelevant questions where the witness is you know, forthcoming and giving information, but actually every answer is implicating himself, right? He's eliminating excuses. And my favorite part of that movie is right before he says, you can't handle the truth, uh, Jack Nicholson looks at Tom Cruise and says, you snotty little bastard. And it's because that's the moment where he realizes I've eliminated every potential excuse. So I don't want your interviewees to be calling all of the investigators snotty little bastards, but that's, that's the strategy. <laughs> How do I ask questions to increase cooperation, but also try to eliminate explanations along the way? Hey, Dave, this part of the podcast will lighten it up a little bit more here. You are on a telephone right now. Mike and I are on uh, cameras. We could see each other, but you can't see us. So I'm going to ask Mike a couple of questions. Tell us if Mike is being truthful or not, if you can. Okay, ready? <laughs> Mike, who's your favorite vice president? Uh, all right. Um, hmm, famous vice president, uh, Gerald Ford. No, no. Mike. <laughs> oh, all right. Mark Solomon? 
No, yeah, the answer was the answer was right in front of you the whole time. Exactly, exactly. I could tell he he delayed, he paused. Uh, one last one. Who's the better looking co-host? You or me, Mike? Uh, I got to go with you, actually. Uh, Wait a second. Wait, do I count? Up. Do I count in that multiple choice answer because I'm on the call today? That's true. I think that all of the above. True. Uh, all of I, the above will be just fine. <laughs> If you had one more check mark, none of the above, I would have took that one. Yeah. What you're, when you're going through this, what's kind of interesting, too, is I bet you a lot of interviewers now are conducting phone interviews and video interviews. And so they don't have that, you know, in-person, face-to-face kind of conversation. And uh, I think it's even more important when we go back to rapport. When we have these conversations over the phone, it's breaking down. You have to be a little more efficient. But if, like, if you have a salesperson that calls you, calls your cell phone, it's really easy to just hang up. When you have somebody knock on your door to sell you something, if, if you make a bad decision and open the door, it's a little bit more difficult to slam the door in somebody's face because there's a human there. So for people that are conducting phone interviews and video interviews, you got to take a little bit more time to humanize yourself in the first few minutes before you jump into anything. Yeah, that's a great tip. Hey, Dave, uh, real quick, um, this is a skill that you have developed over many, many years, other investigators. This is not something you could listen to a 20-minute show and become an expert interviewer. But uh, the question I have for you is, are you able to turn this off? Uh, you have this incredible skill. You're constantly analyzing behavior, answers, questions. Do you find a way to shut this off when you go home at the end of the day? <laughs> uh, it depends who you ask, I think. Um, I'm told no, but I think <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I, I think, though, as, as we, again, progress and evolve interviewing, it's, it's so much less about somebody, you know, flare their nostrils or a liar, I'm going to go after them. I think it's more about being a better active listener. So interviewing has made me in my personal life much better. If somebody's telling me a story or an event or whatever, I'm actively listening and engaging where in the past, you know, interviewing, it used to be a lot of interrupting and asking direct questions. Instead, it's now listening and asking open-ended questions. So that has helped me. Um, I think the part that's hard to turn off and I'm sure you guys are the same is when somebody is telling you a story or a statement or whatever, and it could be completely stupid, right? I have nothing to do with anything, but they have omission in their story. There's gaps in their story. They say something like, um, usually, probably, right? These kind of qualifying words. And I'm not trying to catch anybody, but my brain triggers, oh, wait a second, probably, does that mean you actually did it or you did it? Usually, does that mean it happened this time or just every other time, right? Those things pop in my head. So that, that can be difficult to turn off, but it's important, I think, in all aspects, professional and personal, active listening, and shut up and listen, right? Versus interrupting people a million times to ask follow-up questions. Hey, Dave, just to go along with Mark was saying, you know, on a personal level, when you're out for dinner at night and you order a burger and you ask for extra sauce and they bring it to the table and you ask, did you put extra sauce on there? And they kind of roll their eyes, you know, how, how do you know if they're lying or not? Uh, I think I would probably give the burger to Mark and have him take a bite of it and just figure out. And I wouldn't oh, do it because great. really, if thanks they rolled their eyes, they'd probably spit in the damn burger. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the proof is in the pudding or in the burger, right? I mean, it's the same thing as any kind of investigation. If if you're sitting in the house and you're you're working away and you're listening, somebody says, "Oh man, the weather's terrible. It's raining outside." You could just assume they're telling you the truth. 
or you could open your window and look for yourself. And the same thing with interviews. Sometimes we, we get a piece of evidence, might be a, a witness statement or some type of physical evidence, and we assume it, it's true. And instead, get in and look yourself. And that's what the interview is. It's allowing people to tell you their version of the story, and you are kind of comparing the levels of evidence versus just taking somebody's word for it. Yeah, you know, Dave, I was asking because, you know, taking your work with you on a personal level, you know, like myself, you know, I work for the Postal Inspection Service. So, you know, when I go around the neighborhood, I see those blue boxes. I go over and pull the lever down, make sure it works, you know. So I'm always thinking post office, you know, 24-7. So I'm just curious if you do the same thing with your job. What a difficult, difficult job. Is it difficult for you to drive on the right side of the car now, like with, the, with putting the mail in the box? <laughs> Is driving difficult after that, or did you, did you transition smoothly? Uh, it was a little rough at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to turn off. I think the thing that it's hard to turn off is just being a good active listener. And, you know, when you listen to somebody tell you a story in an investigation, we're, we're picking up on little cues and details and gaps and omissions. And so when you have your, your spouse or your kids, you know, you say, well, what did you do last night? I went to, you know, John's house or I went to the restaurant, I went to the bar. And then uh, after a while, I eventually got home. Well, after a while and eventually are a couple of key words there for me to ask more questions about, but that might just be how that person communicates or maybe they're hiding something. So I think the hard part to turn off is being so maybe emotionally aware and being aware of what areas or gaps do I want to explore in the story. So, Dave, I have a, a great example of nonverbal communication to help you solve uh, and get confessions. Uh, I had a burglar years ago on Christmas Eve. Uh, the burglar came in and stole a bunch of presents under the Christmas tree, which is horrible. Uh, we traced some of the paper outside to a, a homeless shelter around a mile down. There was a little trail of wrapping paper, and we looked at the logs of who left that evening, and we found these two individuals. We're interviewing for 20, 30 minutes, me and my partner. And uh, my partner came to me and, and said, geez, you know, these guys seem solid. They seem like they're telling the truth. But the problem was is they stole a polo sweater and one of them was wearing it. So uh, <laughs> it was pretty hard to explain <laughs> how, how he wasn't involved. But I guess sometimes the obvious uh, sometimes stands out beyond the verbal words, I guess. <laughs> What's interesting with that, I used to do a lot in the, the private sector, the retail space. Like, let's say you see the evidence, right? So I, I apprehend somebody or interview somebody who stole a bunch of fragrances and I see all the empty bottles or boxes that they left. You make that direct accusation, which is what we used to do, right? Hey, investigation clearly shows you stole whatever, 10 bottles of fragrance. You might get that admission, but because it was so obvious and so easy, but what you don't know is that they've been in that store 16 times the last three weeks, stealing $3,000 worth of fragrances and they stole video games and something else. And so sometimes like your polo, that's obvious and clear, we get so excited to get that admission that we forget to ask about maybe the other five houses that they burglarize. their eyes. Yeah, yeah. Right? We get so excited about evidence that's in front of us. Yeah, Mark, you said right off the bat you knew they were lying because you asked them if they believed in Santa Claus, and they told you no, and you do believe in Santa Claus, so you knew they were lying right off the bat. <laughs> Hey, um, Dave, you just brought up a great point there, though, about is post or after you get that incriminating statement. And is there um, a trap that investigators can fall into? Should after you get a confession or he gives you a, a criminal admission, do you stop? Do you continue on? You know, I think a lot of times you could fall into the trap of saying, all right, he confessed to it. But is it important to get additional details, how the crime was committed? What did he do after? Is that all you know, part of a thorough interview? 
no investigation should end with I did it, whether it's a homicide case or somebody falsified their expense report, right? Anything in between. If somebody really simple, a financial crime case, they told you that they embezzled $5,000, however they did it, right? They said, yep, I did it. Well, further questions, things like, what did you do with the money, right? Tell me where that money is now. And I tell you, well, I took that money and I used it to pay my mortgage. Well, where do you pay your mortgage through? How do you pay your mortgage? I mean, maybe they stole physical cash somehow and they had to then deposit that money to then go use it to, to make a payment. Well, every piece of information they give you, in addition to the I did it, helps you substantiate that their confession is reliable and true, which makes it a lot easier to prosecute. It also gives you confidence that that is a true confession, right? When they can give you details that you were originally unaware of. So yeah, I think that point you bring up is probably uh, one of the other mistakes interviewers make is we, we go through this investigation, we get some type of, I did it, we exhale, and then we wrap it up. So don't, don't forget to ask more exploratory questions after to figure out what details that we don't know. Hey, Dave, I wanted to ask if you interview a suspect and they are cooperating and you want to get a statement from them at, at the end of the interview, uh, do you suggest that you have the suspect write the statement or should the investigator write the statement for them? And then I know when you do write the statement for them, you want them to initial and date the pages or you want to make an error where they could initial the, you know, the error on the, on the statement. But which way would you recommend? What I would prefer, depending on obviously agency or company guidelines, corporate guidelines, is recording. Uh, a lot of organizations and departments are going to electronic recording, whether it's just audio or audiovisual. Um, I think we're over 30 states now that have mandates on felony level cases that the interview has to be recorded in its entirety, which is a huge benefit, I think, to good investigators. It shows transparency and what did we actually do in the interview. It's really good because even if I miss something on my notes, I can go back and listen to the interview to go further investigate. So don't go out and do that if you don't have the authority to do that or you need consent in your state to do that. But I think that's that'd be my number one. Uh, number two, if, if you do have somebody write you a statement or you ask for a statement, I would much prefer that they are writing it in their own, their own words, their grammar, their spelling or misspellings, and allow them to do that completely voluntary. Any any dictation, any uh, kind of strong suggestion of what's written really defeats the purpose of why we're doing that in the first place. And I think lastly, just as a backup, if you don't have recording and if they're not going to write you a statement, if you have the capacity to have another person in that room with you as a, as a witness or a note taker, um, they can always write kind of a recap or a narrative or report of some sort of what occurred in that room. So I think transparency is really important when it comes to these interviews. And Dave, for our audience that's out here listening to this podcast today, um, there, you know, there's not a ton of uh, real interviews, you know, on the internet where people can get a taste of sort of the gold standard of interviews. Is there anybody out there that you've seen or a video that really shows really great technique when it comes to interviewing a suspect? Yeah, I think um, more and more videos are becoming available because of what we've talked about is the mandatory recording. A lot of the cases that you see on you know, YouTube or, or whatever else are cases from 10, 15, 20 years ago where maybe the methods weren't, weren't exactly appropriate. So I would suggest if people are looking up, uh, want to see some video examples, you're looking for some keywords to search cognitive interview, peace method, investigative interviewing, non-confrontational interviewing, 
and trauma-informed interviewing and will give you some uh, better results than if you just search for interview interrogation video. And you might see some, some negative examples, but it's tough because all interviews usually have some really good nuggets in there of some takeaways yeah. of things that we should continue to do. And then most of those interviews have a lot of things that, oh, I asked a closed-ended question. That was terrible. Or I interrupted the subject. So I think the one other takeaway from that is one of the other mistakes that we've kind of talked about throughout this this podcast is interviewers don't do a great job of evaluating our own behavior after the conversation. So whether we recorded it or we had a witness in the room or we didn't, is trying to think back, what could I have done better? How often did I interrupt that person? Was I a good active listener? Were there areas I should have asked more questions about? And if we don't do that, we just continue to pat ourselves on the back and we never get better. So evaluating our performance is really important. A lot of great information, Dave. Really appreciate it. You know, I can ask you one more. If you don't mind, if I call you after the uh, recording here, you know, I'm, a bunch of my friends from the old neighborhood are going out this afternoon. We're going to have a couple of beers, so I got to think of something to say to the wife. And I was looking for some advice. I might tell her, you know, I'm going to go work out. But Mark will say, I've seen you, Mike. That's a lie right there. Um, so uh, I'm going to have to call you after. Yeah, don't use Mark as, a, as an alibi. Here, you're a financial crime investigator, so give somebody else your debit card to go you know, like to the grocery store or something. So you have proof of where you want to pretend that you were. Maybe that'll help. You know, don't, or use cash. Cash only is probably a safer to say. Use Mark's, use Mark's credit card. Mike, you go to the bar and then you order Instacart and say, and have it delivered to the house and you just come back in with the groceries. That's all. I see you've been there before. Yeah, somebody's done this. Somebody's <laughs> done this, yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got to set up a hotline to Dave. Right, yeah. Do not disturb and Dave, I got a quick question for those uh, interviewers that are out there listening to this podcast. You know, I think sometimes there's a fallacy where somebody could get in their head like, hey, you know, I'm a really good interviewer. I've been doing this for years. I don't need any further training or expertise or, you know, I don't need to stay on top of my skills. And is that true? And then two, can you talk a little bit about what Wicklander Zalowski and your company does in regards to training investigators? When we conduct training classes, and we've been in business, WZ, for 40 years, and so we've got a lot of interviewers that come through our training program that have been doing interviews or interrogations for decades. If you were to go have surgery, right, you had to go have an operation, and you go and you meet your doctor for the first time, and they say, yep, I went to graduated from medical school, you know, 40 years ago, I've been performing surgeries for 30 years, but... I haven't looked at the news. I haven't reviewed any new research. I haven't looked at any new medication in the last 20 years because I know what I'm doing. I'm really good at it. You would get the hell out of that office, right? You want that professional to be the most up-to-date on how can they be more efficient? How can they be safer? Is there better treatments? And so same thing. Interviewing is a professional trade. It's a professional skill set. And if it's something that we just learned 15, 20, 30 years ago, and we continue just to maybe have success in our mind, we may actually just be reproducing bad habits. There's a ton of research in the last 10 years on better ways to get information, the importance of rapport, asking different types of open-ended expansion questions, uh, the impact of trauma, how memory works, a lot of this research that maybe didn't exist 30 years ago. So it is completely important that we are continuing to educate ourselves on something something really so pivotal in an investigation. And that's really WZ in the last couple of years specifically has transitioned to a ton of new content 
all evidence-based, meaning we're, we're relying on research versus just, I did it this way for a long time. So a lot of new content or at least adjustments or affirmation of things that we were teaching before. Awesome. And Dave, can you give us uh, your website, uh, your company's website, if there are interviewers, professional interviewers uh, that are out there and want more information about the training that you provide? Yeah, and we don't, you don't have to worry about spelling Wicklanders allows you. We'll make it simple. It's just w-z.com. There's a ton of information on there on classes, but also just free information. So we, we write several blogs, everything from, you know, stuff about false confessions and some of the you know, people that like true crime. We've been involved in some of the, the major cases that are out there on some wrongful convictions on how to do things the right way. We've been advocates. Um, but there's also a ton of programs on trauma-informed interviewing, conflict resolution, de-escalation, and just investigative interviewing. So a ton of information there. Same on social media. We're all over the place, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and all, all that good stuff. So hopefully people connect on, on LinkedIn with me. I know ISCI does a ton of stuff. I'm connected with all of you guys on there. And there's also you know great promotions you guys do for your chapter meetings and for the conference coming up. So great platform to connect. Hey, Dave, we really appreciate you coming on to the show. I got to give a little disclaimer, though, right? We don't want our podcasters uh, trying to professionally interview their spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, or significant others and thinking they're experts after listening to this podcast. So um, this is a skill that takes a lot of training, a lot of time. But, you know, we love the fact that you're willing to come on this show and really give our general public an understanding of what it takes to lie and to be deceptive and how investigators are able to break that information down and, and validate if a person's being truthful or not. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for what you do. And we're going to see you shortly in Maryland and uh, look forward to having you on in the future. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I think you're right. This is a, it's a fun topic to discuss, but it's a dangerous skill if, if used inappropriately. So continue to educate. Yep, I'll see you at the conference. I've got a, a two sessions, so uh, Wednesday, and then I uh, believe I've got a half a day on that Friday, so hopefully folks are staying all week. I'm looking forward to it. We'll be there. Hey, Dave, again, thank you for coming on uh, the podcast, and we'll get all your information on our show notes, and uh, you know, there's a lot of law enforcement listeners, a lot of departments out there that might be looking for training, so we want to get as much information about what you do on our show notes. It's great. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.